You're listening to the Vision Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we're taking a closer look at the core values we're seeking to build in our community in South Louisville. Good morning. My name is uh, James Fields, service lead pastor here at Sojourn Church Carlisle. And it's so great to have so many of you here today. You can go ahead and take a seat. You don't have to stand up um, during this time. Um, before we get into our, our text for today, uh, I wanted to take a pastoral pause um, and be able to acknowledge kind of the things that are happening in our world. This week, I sent out a letter um, to our church, and if you weren't able to receive that letter, I wanted you to at least hear it from me. So here's a letter that I was able to write this week to our church. It says, undoubtedly, many of us have, many of us have heard of the shootings that have taken place this past weekend in El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio, leaving 31 people dead. These shootings have brought upon me remarkable sadness as I think about the lives being taken by acts of evil um, and violence. As followers of Jesus, we believe that every person is created in the image of God. This is something that is true of every human, regardless of their religion, ethnicity, political affiliation, or citizenship. Every person is an image bearer. Because of this common bond that we share as creatures made by, um, to bear God's image, we are drawn to lament uh, the loss of every human life, regard, regardless of citizenship, race, class, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. Lamenting, lamenting is an appropriate response for such a tragic situation. In Biblical Laments, Prayer Out of Pain, Michael Guyen writes, When we hurt physically, we cry out in pain. When we hurt religiously, we cry out in lament. Lament is modeled all throughout the scriptures. When the people of God experience pain, whether it be through life, uh, through trials or tribulations, suffering, or the brokenness of a sinful world, we are, called to, we are called by God to cry out to him. He invites us and even encourages us to come to him with our frustrations, our hurts, our tears, our anger, or whatever else we've been feeling. Nothing is off limits with our gracious Father. So how should we respond in the wake of these tragedies? I call us to lament and to pray in the following ways. Number one, lament the brokenness of our world, the presence of sin, and also racism that persists in our world and even in our country. Lament that God's beautiful image bearers were unjustly targeted for murder simply because of the color of their skin, especially in the case of the El Paso shooting. Pray for the families who woke up this morning without loved ones. Pray for those who struggle with chronic pain as they seek to recover from various injuries. Pray that God will respond to the cry of his people to ensure justice to those who seek his hand for such. Rejoice that God promises that he will come back soon and that his kingdom will reign and there will be no more pain, no more tears, and no more suffering. Um, It says uh, at the end, uh, weeping with those who weep, Pastor James Fields. Um, yeah, my heart is heavy. Now, I think our, all of our hearts should be heavy to the, to the um, horrific um, things that are happening, uh, especially in our country right now. Um, our longing, but I also want you to know that our longing stems from God, that our longing for justice, that our longing for God to make things right is not just something that's innate within yourself, It actually comes from the God who provides and is the means of justice. You see, justice is like a voice that calls out to us. It's it's beckoning us. It's luring us to think that there might be such a thing as justice. 
as the world being put to right, even though we find it so elusive. I love how one author puts it. He says, we're like moths trying to fly to the moon. We all know there's something called justice, but we just can't quite get to it. You see, you don't have to teach your children. There's two things you don't have to teach your children. You don't have to teach your children how to sin, and you don't have to teach your children um, this aspect of justice. Just go to a local playground. You'll hear them talking about fairness and unfairness. So I'm going through that right now in my house. I'm sure Kelly and uh, Kevin came to babysit our kids, and I'm sure they heard that cries of injustice happening and, uh, at our house. But we all are, are, are birthed. We all are given a sense of justice um, as human beings. God has given us a sense of, of, of having things to be made right um, and having it, things to be made right ultimately by him. I love what N.T. Wright writes about this. He says this quote in his book, Simply Christian. He says that passion for justice is a central feature of all human life. It is expressed in different ways, and it can sometimes get twisted and go horribly wrong. There are still mobs and even individuals who are prepared to kill someone, anyone, in the distorted belief that as long as someone gets killed, some kind of justice is being done. But all people know in cooler moments that this strange thing we call justice, this longing for things to be put right, remains one of the great human goals and dreams. Christians believe that this is so because all humans have heard deep within themselves the echo of a voice which calls us to live like that. And they believe that Jesus, that in Jesus, that voice became human. And he did what had to be done to bring about that which is ultimately justice. It's a beautiful reminder that we can't fix the injustice of, the, of this world because we ourselves are unjust. We are unjust. We are depraved. But there is one who came and embodied human flesh and took upon our sins upon a cross, and we can look to him as the author, as the founder, and as the perfecter of our faith. Amen? Amen. We look to Jesus to unify and to bring justice in an unjust world. You can't have justice without having Jesus. So would you stand with me today as we look at our text that we're going to start from? We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to look at this aspect of God's vision for our church as we start our vision series. It reads as follows, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 11. Um, It says this, it says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, verse 12, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity, someone say maturity, with the stature measured by Christ's fullness. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. What I want to do today is uh, my task is not easy. It's, it's, it's quite hard, so you're going to have to walk with me a little bit. But my task today is to start a vision series. If you look on your program at the very front, it has this beautiful picture of uh, a, a half-seated, uh, well, uh, well-decorative grass, and then it has a side that's not, doesn't look so good. Um, we are in a sense of, a, as a church, my family and I have been here now for the, next three, uh, for the last three weeks, and we are starting our vision series. And 
The vision that we have that God has placed on my heart from the church stems from his word. And it stems from these verses that we just read from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Notice with me the three things that Paul calls this church to do um, specifically. He says the role of the minister, the role of um, God's people, his servants are to do the following. One is equipping the saints for the work of ministry. We're called to equip the saints for the work of ministry in order to build up the body of Christ until we reach unity in the faith and knowledge in God's son. Growing into maturity with the stature measured by Christ. These simply, uh, what, I, what I like to call our vision and what I'll lean on heavily as far as language for the next three weeks are what I call the three M's of Carlisle's vision. The first M is right behind me, I believe, yes. The first M I'm looking at is equipping the saints for the work of ministry. This is what I call missional engagement. It's the first M of the three M's, missional engagement. We envision a community that is thoroughly equipped and focused to reach our neighboring community with the gospel of Jesus Christ here in South Louisville and beyond. We want to be a church that is focused specifically in an area and the context that God has given us. We are not in South Louisville just because we want to be in South Louisville. We're here because God has planted us here. Hopefully you are here because you want to be here. Um, and this is a context where we want to see God um, grow and advance his kingdom. Amen? The second thing we see is he wants to build up the body of Christ until we reach, we reach maturity. Um, here, or excuse me, until we reach unity of the faith and knowledge of God's Son. Here's the second M. Not only do we want to be a missionally engaged community, we also want to be a multi-ethnic community. What does that mean? We, this is what this means. We envision a community that reveals and exemplifies the gospel while celebrating the multifaceted. When I say multifaceted, I'm saying the multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual, and multi-generational nature of the kingdom of God. We want to be a church that is not exclusive based upon one's creed, culture, or ethnicity. We want to be a church that can celebrate, celebrate in songs, celebrate in um, coming together in meals in our community groups, celebrate with those who have different cultures and maybe in ethnicities and cultural experiences than that, that of our own. We are called to be what Christ has died uh, and what his church is, which is a multi-ethnic body. God has given his church for the nation's to become disciples, and we want to have the nations represented here, even in our very midst, each and every Sunday, by God's grace. The third thing we want to do is grow into maturity with the stature measured by Christ. The last thing and the thing we're going to focus on today is maturity. There's two aspects of maturity that we're going to talk about. One is your individualistic maturity, how to grow to Christ yourself. We'll talk about that today. Next week, we'll talk about communal. What does it look like for us to grow in maturity in the context of community? In regards to maturity, this is what we want and we envision. We envision a community that's growing in unity in our devotion towards and knowledge of Jesus. It is our desire to joyfully acknowledge human dignity and specifically the Imago Dei in every person, regardless of their race, ethnicity, culture, culture, political affiliation, or socioeconomic status. This is what God has called us to do, to become, to reach. Again, the, th the three M's are missional engage engagement, multi-ethnicity, and then finally maturity. We'll focus on maturity for our time today. I love what, uh, the, 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 what Paul says in verse 11 of Ephesians 4. He says this. He names all these people. He says he, he himself, being God, God himself 
gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and then some pastors and teachers. What we see here is that God calls us to unity, but not to uniformity. Listen to the very diverse people that he uses to grow us in maturity. He uses the apostles who gave us the foundation. He gives us the prophets who gives us the word of God, um, from, give us the word of God from the very throne room of God, the evangelists to go out and to reach the lost, and pastors and teachers to teach us and to shepherd us um, in order to grow into maturity in Christ. This is a good reminder that our oneness in Christ does not destroy our individuality. There is one body, but yet many members. And we want to be a representative of that, even in the context that we sit in right here today, um, each and every Sunday. The implication here is that you matter to God, and that growing into Christian maturity is an individual responsibility that occurs within a communal context. Let me say that again. Growing into Christian maturity is an individual responsibility that occurs within a communal context. I love what Proverbs 1.7 says. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And what that tells me is that spiritual growth always stems from God. That God is the one who gives life. Amen? It's not about reading more books or, or praying more. It's about looking into to look into God through the person of Jesus, knowing him intimately, because God is the only one who can stems and who can catalyze spiritual growth in our lives, especially in a church, in every church that's representing his name throughout the nation. I love what John 17, 3 says. It says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? Eternal life. You don't have to wait to heaven to experience that. You can experience that right now. And this is a definition that Jesus gives us for eternal life according to John 17, 3 in his high priestly prayer. He says, eternal life is this, that you may know God, the only true God, through the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but that's good news because I don't have to wait to heaven in order to experience God. Amen. I can experience God each and every day as I grow in love for his word and for his people and for his spirit. I can enjoy God every single day through hardships and trials, pain and suffering. I can look to a God who's resurrected and who's resurrecting me. Amen. Spiritual maturity. It stems from God, but it also needs our involvement. I love what John 10, 10 says. It says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full, to have it in all its fullness. Another version says, have it abundantly. So today what I want to do is talk about human flourishing. I want to talk about this aspect of maturity, but I want to talk about it from the aspect of human flourishing. And I want you to know this, that God desires for you to flourish. God desires for you to to flourish, and the Bible itself is bookend. It has a beginning and it has an end about this flourishing. And we're going to look at both of those bookends today. From Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24, we're going to look at specifically what does it mean for us to be created in the image of God and and, and to be made in his likeness, um, not just in the context of creation, but also in our communal relationship with our spouses. The other aspect we're going to look at is Revelation 21. One through seven. And that's one of my favorite parts of the scripture of uh, this sermon today, because that's for the silent. That's for the steel, and that's for the sufferers within our congregations. 
Those who are suffering even with the weight and the tragic events that even happened this week in El Paso, in um, Dayton, and wherever other uh, city it may happen in going forward, this is for those who are silently suffering in our midst. Revelation 21, we'll end there during our time. Look with me in your bullet, in your program, you should have this verse, but flip there if you want to with me to Genesis chapter 2. We'll begin there about human flourishing um, with, our, with our text today. I love what Pen- John, uh, Jonathan Pennington, who's a member at Midtown and a, a professor here at Southern Seminary, says about what it means to flourish. He has this quote in his book, The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. He says this, he says, true human flourishing is only available through communion with the Father God through his revealed son, Jesus, as we are empowered by the spirit. This flourishing is only experienced through faithful, heart deep, whole person discipleship following Jesus' teaching and life, which situate the disciple into God's community or kingdom. This flourishing only will be experienced fully in the eschaton when God fully establishes his reign upon the earth. As followers of Jesus journey through uh, their lives, they will experience suffering in the world, which which by God's providence is in fact a means of true flourishing even now. I love this. I love this. He says that um, the suffering that we experience by God's providence is in fact a means to true flourishing even now. Look with me at Genesis chapter 2 as we look at the, the brackets, the bookends of the Bible. It talks about human flourishing and what does it mean to flourish as into maturity in knowledge of God. Genesis 2.18 begins with these words. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper corresponding or equal, compatible, or suitable to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to see what he would call it. And whenever the man called a living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at his place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this, he said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. There's a great lie that we believe in our society, especially our Western society today. And the great lie is this, is that being single is a sin. That being single is a sin, or put it another way, singleness means being alone. Now, I have to define what I mean by single because there's a lot of definitions out there. So let me be clear what I'm saying when I say single. Um, the, The dictionary definition of being single is one who is separate, unique, and whole. One who is uh, an entity by himself or him or herself. That is true. But also, specifically, I'm talking about um, single in, in this context as well. Those who are not within a relationship. Those who are not within a dating relationship. I'm also talking to those who um, are within a dating, uh, uh, who are within a premarital dating relationship. So those who are engaged. I'm talking about boyfriend, girlfriends, bays, whatever you ever want to call them, my bae, my boo, whatever you want to call them. Um, I'm talking to that group as well. And the last group I'm talking to is a group that maybe have, has lost your spouse through divorce 
or even death. The lie that the world tells us is that being single is a sin. It's a problem that needs to be fixed. I know my singles probably can say amen to that. That you, you, every time you go to somebody's house, it's like, hey, you can come over too. You don't mind me if I, I invite Johnny over to have dinner with us too? And you're like, no, I don't want Johnny. I just want to hang out with y'all. Singleness is not something that we have to fix. Being alone is not something, being single is not something that is not a sin. You see, the Bible doesn't say it is not good for the man to be single. The Bible says it is not good for the man to be alone. Alone is is different than being single. Alone means exclusive, isolated, solitary confinement. He says that it's not good for man to be alone. You see, God had no problem with man's singleness. He had no problem with him being separate, unique, or whole because he created him as such. God didn't say it is not good for man to be single. See, the beauty of this context is that God likes diversity. God likes uniqueness. He, he likes it so much that he didn't allow any two humans to, to have the same fingerprints on their bodies. He, he likes it so much that every human has a different eye retina pattern um, in, in their eye. He likes it so much that every human being has a different DNA cell and structure, that there's no, there's no person who has the same DNA cell or structure um, that he has created. You see, God insists on uniqueness in his creation. Thus, being single, being unique, being separate, being whole is essential to, and it's the foundation of, um, not only marital relationships, but also relationships in general that are flourishing. It's not good for man to be single. See, I have a bunch of keys on this key reading right here. And each key is different size. I used to have a lot more when I was in Princeton. Praise God, I got rid of those keys. I got Louisville keys here now. Uh, I don't have New Jersey and Louisville keys on my key ring. But notice that there's a bunch of keys on the key ring, but each key is unique. Each key is separate. Each key is whole. Yet every key is connected by a common ring. The keys are single, but they are not alone. Thus, humans, you can be single, and still not be alone. Singleness is not something that we are called to fix. If you are single here, we we invite you. We thank God for you. We say, yes, be single and be proud and know that God loves you and you're not a problem that we're trying to fix. You're not someone we're trying to set up with somebody to, to get you married. You are beloved and you're accepted because you are made in the image and likeness of God. You see, God never saves groups. He only saves individuals. Notice, what, remember what John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I love that aspect of whosoever. Because that means that anybody can come to faith in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? You don't have to be married. You don't have to be divorced. You don't have to be... Anybody can come to the throne. There's, at the cross of Jesus, there's no big eyes or little U's. We all stand before the, the, before the throne of God as equal people in needing of redemption and grace every single day. So how do we flourish? Notice me, with me in Genesis chapter 2, a couple of things. Notice with me that having a companion, that God, again, my argument is that God is for 
singleness. He is for you being a unique person by yourself, apart from even anyone else. Notice here that, that, here, that having a, a companion was God's idea, not Adam's. <laughs> Notice here that it was God's idea, not Adam. You see, Adam was totally separate. He was totally unique. He was totally whole. And honestly, Adam didn't even know that he needed somebody else. God had to reveal this, this need to Adam in verse 18. He had to show Adam because Adam was so busy being a part of what God has created and enjoying God and enjoying his creation and, and being all that God had called him to be, that God had to pause and show him that, hey, you're alone. I don't know about you, but I pray that as a church we can grow into maturity, that we're so caught up into what God is doing. We're so caught up into relationship with God. We're so caught up into knowing God and lo no loving others as we know God. We're so caught up in our relationship with God that actually someone needs to come and tell us that, hey, you may be alone. You, may, you need to chill out with God and come, come to this group a little bit um, and, and enjoy this, this communal aspect. You see, the goal of the Christian life is to be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. It is to develop an in, uh, intimate relationship with God through his son, Jesus. This is a word to my singles and to, those, and to the suitors who are, who are wanting to or thinking about marriage or, or those who are, are not even thinking about marriage. Don't be preoccupied looking for someone to be all things to you who is not God. You should be so consumed. We should be so consumed with being who we are and whom God has created us to be that God will have to interrupt us in order to bring you a companion, much like he did, had to do for Adam. You see, Adam was so consumed with enjoying life in the garden and fulfilling his purpose that he, he didn't have time to look up or look around for anybody else. God had to interrupt him. He had to put him to sleep in order to make him another to present to him. That's probably a lot of your testimony too, even those who are married. Listen, I wasn't thinking about marriage. I wasn't looking for nobody. I was talking to a couple who actually got married recently. I, I, I was listening to their testimony. It was the same thing. You go to a wedding, you meet somebody, you talk for like five hours, you look up like, man, we really enjoy each other's company. I wasn't looking for you, but I'm glad you're here. This is the aspect of what God calls us to. Having a companion was, was God's idea, not Adam's. The second thing, Adam needed someone compatible to him. Remember what the story says, that God took Adam to all the animals and he showed him all the animals. Uh, he, he, Adam had the privilege of naming all the animals. And as he's looking at Mr. Hippopotamus and Mrs. Hippopotamus and Mr. O uh, Ostrich and Mrs. Ostrich, he, he just kind of noticed like, okay, wow, everybody got a pair except for me. What's going on with that? You see, God didn't say Adam isn't a whole being, so I will make him a wife to complete him. What God said was, I'm going to make him a helper who is compatible or suitable or like him. I'm going to make him another human being who will compliment him and be complimented by him. So for those who are looking to marriage or even for us who are already married, your marriage will only be successful as your singleness because you can only bring which you can only bring, which you, excuse me, because you can only bring to a marriage what you, what you are as a person alone. This is why it's so important as you're single to continue to not forsake relationship with Jesus, to not re, re, um, re, forsake even relationship and community with other, other singles as well as marrieds. 
Because God is using all of those things to shape you and to grow you into the person he's calling you to be. Marriage is honorable in itself, but it's what we bring into it that causes the trouble. No human being can meet um, your, 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 need, your ego needs, your spiritual needs, your soul needs. You're only fit or ready for marriage when you are totally fulfilled in God. When you're totally fulfilled in God. I love what Piper says about this. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are the most satisfied in him. Last thing I want us to notice is not just that God, uh, companionship was God's idea, not just that Adam needed someone to, to complete, uh, to be compatible to him, but notice this, that Eve herself was presented by God as Adam's equal. That Eve was presented by God as Adam's equal. Let me talk to my ladies out there right now. Women, you are not second-class citizens within the kingdom of God. You're not just a mom. You're not just a grandma. You're not just a wife. You're not just a girlfriend. You're not just someone's bae. You are God's masterpiece. You are created in God's image and his likeness. You have, in, you have intrinsic and immeasurable value before God as his daughter. You are not a less than or secondary species. You are created with the same image and imprint that, that God created man with. And men, we should exhort and encourage our women in that way. We shouldn't berate or, 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 or subject them. And it's my prayer that every woman, every woman a part of our congregation will feel the dignity and worth, not just by their husbands, and not just by their, their friends, but by every man in this church, that we will exalt and we will celebrate in the uniqueness that women are created in the same likeness and image that, of God that we are. Amen? Marriage is, is simply two separate whole beings, two whole people becoming one. You see, God's creative work was not complete until he made a woman. He could have made her from the dust of the ground as he made Adam, but God chose in his sovereignty to make her from man's flesh and bone. And in doing so, he illustrated for us that in marriage, that in marriage, man and woman would symbolically, would symbolically become one flesh. You see, God created Eve not just to marry Adam. We need to help our daughters to understand. I'm, I'm helping my daughter to understand that. You're not, just mar- you're not just created just to marry a man. You're created to know God. You're created to know him intimately. You're created to be shaped and grafted and changed into the image of the Savior. You're created for greatness. You're created to, for glory. You're created to mirror the likeness and character of the God you serve. This is the lesson. This is what we want to teach our young girls. They're not just being brought up to be married, a, a nice guy, to have a nice life. They're married to be image bearers of their God and King, King Jesus. See, marriage will not solve loneliness or being alone. Marriage is not the answer to being alone. Relationship with Jesus and his church is. That's what the answer to being alone is. Jesus says, I'm a friend that will stick closer than a brother. Now, in the same breath, I also want to say that God forms and equips men and women for various tasks. But all these tasks lead to the same goal, which is honoring God. 
You see, man was used by God to give life to woman, or to create woman, but woman gives life to the world. Each role carries exclusive privileges, and there is no room in thinking that one sex is superior to the other. God gave marriage as a gift to Adam and Eve. They were created perfect for each other. Marriage was not just for convenience, nor was it brought by any cultural expectation. But marriage was instituted by God in creation. And it had these three basic tenets to go along with it for a strong marriage. One, a man should leave his parents in a public act he promises himself to his wife. It is a covenantal commitment done in a public way. You are leaving your heritage, you're leaving your family, and you're starting a new family with this woman to love and to cherish for the rest of your days. The man and the woman were joined together by taking responsibilities for each other's welfare and by loving their mate above all others. That you wouldn't be looking around, still married, but still shopping around to see who's cute out there. That you are a one-woman man or you are a, a, a one, uh, one, um, one woman's man or one man woman. I don't know if that made sense, but that's okay. <laughs> Last thing is this, is that the two became flesh in the intimacy and commitment of sexual union that is reserved for marriage. This is what God has called us to, is to flourish in this aspect. That God has created Adam, he's created Eve as separate entities, as, as a whole entity. And he brought these two whole entities together and they decided that they wanted to engage in a covenantal commitment before God, their creator, called marriage. You know what, if, if we wanna get justice right, if we want to reach this community, if we want to be a light, a beacon of light in this community, it, it not only starts with us and our maturity before God, but it also starts with our maturity within our marriages. It's, it's unique that God creates marriage before he creates anything else. I think there's a, there's a reason for that. There's a purpose behind that. And while marriage doesn't solve everything, there is a picture that God wants us to see that human marriage was provided to provide for us the picture of the heavenly marriage that we see in Revelation 21. Look with me in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. It says this. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and I am the omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. I love these verses. Again, the, book, the Bible has bookends of human flourishing, both in Genesis 2, but also in Revelation 21. The only difference is that Revelation 21 um, happens after an enduring, an entire enduring of, of the, the, the fall and brokenness, and of enduring the fallenness and the brokenness of the world that we endure every single day. 
But listen to the hope. There's three hopes I want you to get out of this text before I take my seat. The first one is this, is that God is our tabernacle. That God is our tabernacle. Look with me in verse three. It says, the new Jerusalem is where God lives among his people. Instead of our going up to meet him, he, come down, he comes down to be with us just as God became man in Jesus Christ and lived among us. I love John 1.14. It says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt in the Greek means that he tabernacled, he inhabited, he set up his residence among us. We need a God who not only sees the suffering and injustice that we experience every day, but we need a God who comes to our neighborhood and set up residence with us. And you have that in the person of Jesus. You have that in the promise that he has made. You have that in the promise, even in what you're sitting in right now, the church of the living God. You have a God who desires to tabernacle, to abide, and to reside with us. My prayer is that Sojourn Church Carlisle will be a tabernacle in South Louisville and beyond. It will be a gathering. We'll be a mosaic, if you will. We'll be a gathering of God's masterpiece, of the, the, the beauty of the gospel not just being spoken, but the gospel actually being embodied through the persons, through every single person who calls himself a Christian, who follows Jesus in, the, in, in, our, in our midst each and every Sunday. You see, wherever God reigns, there's always peace, security, and love. Not only is God our tabernacle, but we also see that God is our creator. Notice the Bible begins with the majestic story of his creation of the universe, and it concludes with his creation of the new heavens and the new earth. This means that we're safe with God, that with God, our sins are forgiven, and not only our sins forgiven, but our future is secure in him. And just as God finished the work of creation in Genesis 2, and just as Jesus finished the work of redemption at the cross, so too the Trinity will finish the entire plan of salvation by inviting the redeemed into a new creation. God has you, he has all of you secured. There's no aspect of your life that's not secured with with, with our God. He is creator, sustainer, and redeemer from beginning to the end. He said it in his word in Revelation 21. I am the alpha and the omega. I'm the beginning and I'm the end. There's no way you can be outside of my hands. I will wipe every tear from your eye. I hope that brings hope. Can you imagine how many tears God is going to have to wipe away? in the new heavens and the new earth, but guess what? He's committed to doing that. Every tear will be wiped, every tear. And some of you, even right now, you're probably coming to this church, you're probably crying right now for the tragedies that's happened, the, 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 the problems that are happening in your life. God sees your tears. He has come through Jesus to be among your tears, and in the end, he is faithful to wipe every tear away. He's faithful to do it. Lastly, he's our redeemer. He will wipe every tear away as he has promised. I'm going to end with a quote from N.T. Wright from his book, Simply Christian. You can tell what I was reading this week because I'm quoting from him a lot, but that's okay. He says this um, uh, in his book. He says, from the very beginning, 2,000 years ago, the followers of Jesus have always maintained that he took the tears of the world and made them his own. 
carrying them all the way to his cruel and unjust death to carry out God's rescue operation. And that, and, and that um, he took the joy of the world and brought it to new birth as he rose from the dead and thereby launched God's new creation. But it makes the point that the Christian faith endorses the passion for justice, which every human being knows, a longing to see things put to rights. And it claims that in Jesus, God himself has shared this passion and put it into effect so that in the end, all tears will be dried and the world will be filled with justice and joy. Let that be our prayer now. You pray with me. Father, we do thank you and praise you. We thank you, God, that you've called us to maturity in you. Lord, you called us to be like you and to represent you in every way. Lord, we do praise you, God, that you've called us as your own, as your children, as your unique image bearers. Father, help us to take ownership of that. Help us to delight in that. Help us not to hide behind our marriages or, the lack, or if we're not married. Um, help us not to hide behind that. But Lord, help us to come as individuals before a holy and righteous God, knowing that you want to have a relationship with each and every one of us. That personal relationship with Jesus matters. That spiritual maturity stems from you, but it matters to you. God, would you take our little and make much of it? Would you grow us to have a maturity that's measured by the stature and the person of Jesus? God, we forsake other things that we've measured ourselves by, wealth, culture, tradition, expectations of our own or expectations that other, other people put on us, God. We renounce those things and repent of those things now in the name of Jesus, and we ask that you would be the measure, you would be the means, you would be the person that we measure ourselves by, not just for now, but even through eternity. Thank you that you're safe and you're good. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.